0: Thursday, June 27th, 2019. I'm Shannon and I have Stacy here with me. We have Min here and we have Kristen. So we are here to talk about the wonderful, fantastic, amazingness that is (laughs) historical romance. (laughs) Yay! Because we love it. So Stacy, because she's cool like that, will start us off I will follow, followed by Min and Kristen, and then we will start again. But before we do that, I have the usual housekeeping information. You can find us on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. Once you're there, you can like and or follow the page. You can also join our Facebook listener group so you can hang out with all of us. And with other listeners of the podcast, we would definitely enjoy seeing you there. If Twitter is where you like to spend your time, you can find us there at bistro underscore book, or you can send us an email, and that address is the bookbistro podcast at gmail.com. All right, it is now time to talk
1: about books. I am so excited to talk about this first book. This is an author who was new to me until I read this book. And this is one of my favorite reads so far in 2019. And the book is called The Rogue of Fifth Avenue, Uptown Girls, Book One by Joanna Shoup. And if you haven't read this book yet, please, like, don't even listen to anything else. Just rush out and buy this book, like, right this second. It was so, so, so good. It was everything that I love in a historical romance. So, Mamie is a Fifth Avenue woman, and she, her, basically, she's the oldest of three sisters, and she knows that as long as she marries the man that her father has picked out for her, her sisters can marry whomever they wish. But her father has this arranged match for her to kind of, you know, unite two very wealthy New York families. But Mamie has these aspirations of helping those who live in the poor areas of New York City. And so she's always like rushing off to like gambling establishments and other places to um, earn money. And basically she steals from the rich, like a Robin Hood type thing to give to the poor. And the only person kind of running herd on Mamie and her activities is the family lawyer, Frank Tripp. And Frank is living a lie. He has told everyone that he is from a wealthy Chicago family and he is, you know, he has um, a, a degree from a, a, um, an Ivy League school and that he is all these amazing things. But actually, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps from the very, very poorest area of New York City. And he does not want anyone to know that truly he has a family still living in the poorest area of the city. I'm sorry, there are birds tweeting in the background, but it's beautiful. Um, So Mamie and Frank kind of have this sort of enemy-type relationship because he's always, like, I mean, one time he actually jumped off a balcony to prevent a man from pouring a substance into her drink at a gambling establishment. So he's always just, like, showing up where he's not wanted. But then Mamie starts working with these women who – Um, are not getting enough money and are trying to keep their families afloat while their men are out doing all sorts of nefarious things. And so she reaches out to Frank to assist her in her endeavors. And so they start working together and they slowly, their their attraction to each other kind of slowly builds. And it's really quite hot, actually, um, in its slow burn way. And, you know, in the meantime, she's trying to think about how to fulfill her obligation to her father and that arranged marriage that she's supposed to take part in while she's attracted to Frank Tripp. And what will happen if all of Frank's secrets are divulged to New York society? And this was one of the best books I've read in a long time. And I, I thought that the, indeper- the independence of the heroine was one of the best things about this book. And just the, um, the glimpse that Joanna Shoup gave us into a New York um, just before the turn of the 20th century was quite well done. And I am so excited to see what happens in the next book. I'm assuming it's going to be about the sister who keeps smutty books tucked under her bed. Um, and I know, right? Wow. And it's just, yes. And um, just her writing is really vivid and really, um, you can tell she did a lot of research into the era of the golden age in New York. So if you want something a little bit different, um, I would encourage you to pick up. The Rogue of Fifth Avenue, Uptown Girls, Book One by Joanna Shoup. And it just came out last month, and it is incredible. And has anybody read it besides me in this group yet? No. No. I oh, haven't. Please,
2: no, please I, read it. I haven't. I think I saw it when it came out on Goodreads. So, shall we talk about more independent heroines? Yes, please.
0: Okay. So, Kelly Bowen is amazing i was saying to stacy i think i was saying it just to you i don't think i don't know if i said it to the whole staff thread but the historicals that people write today are just not quite like they were 10 15 20 years ago we were just talking about that yesterday the two of us yes i I thought i had that conversation Mm -hmm. so i'm very picky about the modern historicals that i i pick up but Kelly Bowen intrigued me pretty pretty much from the start when I picked this book up. This is Duke of My Heart. And it's the first book in her Season for Scandal trilogy. And the premise, this like Stacy would think that she would like this book because it starts (laughs) out in a like a ballroom. And Stacy doesn't like ballrooms. But I know, I know, but Kelly Bowen, it's, it's very different and fun and great. So our hero is named Max. And he has come home from a voyage on the high seas to find a dead earl tied to his sister's bed. Oh, heavens. Now, this this is not good. Like, no one wants this. Like, you know, he is a duke. He does not know how to handle the situation at all. He's very concerned about... His sister's reputation, he does not want this like getting you know, out all over London. And there's only one person who can make sure that that doesn't happen, and her name is Ivory. And Ivory works for this kind of elite group of people who basically move around London and clean up scandals that the aristocracy is trying really hard to kind of sweep under the rug. So she goes in and she spins a good story and makes all these things happen so that these scandals don't end up troubling high society in the way that they could if they were allowed to just like get out everywhere. So Ivory is going to make this better for Max, but he has to trust her to do that. And that's really hard for him because he's used to being in charge you know, he's a duke and he has this whole like shipping empire that he manages. He spent a lot of time at sea and he's just not used to following directions given to him by a woman. But (laughs) he learns pretty quickly that Ivory knows a lot more than he does about how to keep his family safe in this situation. And so he does end up kind of bowing to her superior knowledge, which I love in a romance. In so many romances, we see men just being able to kind of come in and and save the day. And the women are just like, oh, you know, what should I do? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So I really enjoyed seeing Ivory take the lead here. And this is a book that has the kind of witty banter that you come to expect from a lot of the British historicals. British set historical, I should say. But it also just has this lovely romance where the hero and heroine complement each other so beautifully. Um, there's also this really creepy kind of crime boss person, like whatever the historical version of a crime boss is, I'm not really sure. Um, but he, you see him in this series and you see him um, in another series that Bowen has written, and I'm hoping. That one day, very soon, King will get a book of his own because he just like enchants me. He He needs um, a book of his own. He does. He does. So, this once again is Duke of My Heart and it's Season for Scandal, book one. This is my favorite book in this trilogy. Um, I don't always love the first book in a series, but this one I thought was just so excellent. Um, Her other stuff is very, very good as well, but this one. It's just very, very special.
1: So I read a review by this author, or about this author, and it said basically her books remind people of, like, if Lisa Kleypas and Julia Quinn had a love child, that would be Kelly Bowen. Would you agree hmm. with that,
0: Shannon? That's what I read. I don't know if it's true. So you will all hate me, but not as much as Natalia would hate me if she were here. I don't hate you. I, you might. <laughs> I have never <laughs> read a Lisa Kleypas book in my oh. life.
1: Oh, I do wow.
0: hate you. Yes. Oh, I do hate you. <laughs> so Amen. I have read Julia Quinn, and I love her, but I, I cannot speak to that. I do not know. I don't know how you have
1: never read a Lisa Kleypas in your life. I
2: really haven't. You know, I have to admit, I, I haven't either, but Stop. I have read a wow. lot of the others you guys mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to be talking about a Lisa
1: Kleypas book, so. I know. I can't I wait. That. Is um, that a good segue? Is
2: it? It
3: could be. <laughs>
1: it could be. Do <laughs> you want to tell us a about a Lisa
0: Kleypas book?
3: <laughs> well, okay, since we were talking about Lisa Kleypas, I am going to be talking about Tempt Me at Twilight, which is the third book in her Half series. It's one of my favorite historical romances. Um, it's one of my comfort reads of all time. And, and my favorite. Yep, and I picked this one because I feel like the characters are really relatable. Um, the family is really great. So this third book focuses on Poppy Hathaway. She's the second to last sister in the Hathaway family and the halfway family is very unconventional. Um, they're not your usual aristocratic family. Um, so they came into their inheritance later in life. Um, you know, Leo Hathaway, the only son of the family, inherited the title from like a distant cousin who passed away. So before he became Viscount Ramsay, they were just kind of like a normal family that lived in um, Hampshire. Um, They're they're like a very loving, very affectionate family. Um, And like I said, very unconventional, Um, like her two older sisters married uh, gypsies or Roma as they're called. Um, And back in like the 1840s when the books are set, that's very, very unheard of, and they're kind of um, scorned by the rest of society for that. So Poppy, who's extremely beautiful, she's like the beauty of the family. Um, She just wants a normal life. Like, that's what she wants most from the world. Um, She loves her family, but she just wants to get married, have her own children, and kind of live her life. So when the book begins... Um, She and her family are staying at the Rutledge Hotel, which is this really fancy, really prestigious hotel that kind of like all the wealthy, all the aristocratic families stay at when they're in London if they don't have their own residences in London. Um, So they're there for the season. um, And... Poppy is kind of close to getting engaged to uh, her sweetheart, Michael. Um, And I can't remember his name or title right now. But, um, yeah, so she's close to getting engaged to Michael, but she catches the attention of the elusive and reclusive. (laughs) Harry Rutledge the owner of the hotel he's an American entrepreneur and not much is known about Harry Rutledge because he's very um, impersonable like people don't know much about him he keeps to himself he's kind of like this mysterious figure in the society that people kind of talk about and whisper about Um, but he is really interested in Poppy as soon as he meets her, and he's like, I need to make her mine in any way possible. So, at a ball, he got her into a compromising situation, and they get caught, of course. Of course. And so, <laughs> um, Poppy is forced to marry him even though she doesn't want to and she's like I will never love you because you are not the man I want to marry and Harry is like I don't care I'm going to make you love me and you know meanwhile this is going on Michael who Poppy thought truly loved her and would kind of overlook what happened to be with her is kind of nowhere to be found. He's like, I can't marry you because of this. And my father won't allow it. And I just can't. Um, So Poppy's kind of devastated, but she has no other choice but to marry Harry. And, you know, throughout the book, they kind of fall into this pattern of she tries to get closer to Harry and he gives a little bit and then he pulls away and so there's just kind of like this tug of war of emotions going on and Poppy is just really sweet to everybody in the hotel that she um, becomes this really great figure for um, all the staff and they love her, and they kind of come up with different schemes to get Poppy and Harry into positions where they like fall in love and things like that um, but there is kind of a I don't want to say like a mystery because I feel like in all of these I best books there's some kind of uh drama at the end to pull like the two figures to get uh, the two main characters together um and that happens and so for me this book um I love British romances that has an kind of like an American hero um I haven't read a lot with like American heroines but um Harry Rutledge for me—he just grows so much throughout this book. He learns to open up to Poppy, um, but not to her, and not only to her, but to his staff in the hotel who are really loyal to him because he's—he's he's a good boss. Um, but he just has never been able to open up to anyone until Poppy came along. So kind of like the growth and character is amazing. Um, some people may call Harry like an anti-hero, but I don't, I think in the beginning he may be an anti-hero, but by the end he's, he turns into one of my favorite male heroes, like romance heroes of all time. So this is Tempt Me at Twilight by Lisa Flayfest, and it's the third book in the halfway series.
2: So, I think to kind of stick with the British historical thing for right now, um, I love Joanna Lindsay, Um, and the book I chose to talk about was her sixth book, um, The Present, in the Mallory Anderson series. Yay! Um, And one thing that is different about this book versus all the others in the series is that you get to see two different time periods because you originally come in the book with the current um, Mallory Anderson family. But what happens is they're all gathering at, uh, I don't know how to say this, Haverston, Haverston, I've heard it said both ways. Um, for Christmas, which is one of the family owned um, uh, estates um, and so there the whole family is gathering at this estate for Christmas and somehow somewhere someone puts a um, a mysteriously wrapped gift on a pedestal in the drawing room and nobody knows what it is but there was a note I believe is how it happened there was a note saying don't open till Christmas but of course the family is what the family is and they can't wait that long (laughs) um which I know the feeling because I usually can't wait that long either I always give presents before the day actually comes because I just can't help myself so (laughs) it's a beautiful um, thing (laughs) <laughs> it is. So they eventually open this present and there's no note saying who it's from or anything like that. It was just left there. Well, but it turns out to be the journal, um, a collaborative journal between two of their ancestors. And when they begin to read this novel, they, they start... I I think it's Amy who opens the book and she just can't help herself because she's, she's, she's the one in the family that always has a feeling about something and she's never wrong. Um, kind of like she's the empath of the family, I guess. Um, and so they start gathering in the drawing room um, each night to read more of the journal. And as they're reading this journal... You, it's not them reading it to you, it, it takes you back in time, and you're actually oh. seeing um, the actions between their two ancestors, Christopher Mallory and Anastasia. Oh gosh, I always murder the last name, uh, Stefanov, I think is how you say it. Um, and Christopher is Christopher Mallory, obviously from the Mallory family. Um, he's, you know, sworn never to marry and, um, he, he's just not one for settling down, but he comes across this band of gypsies and this one really young girl catches his eye and he sits down at their camp and he eventually gets drunk and they end up coupling and he doesn't remember any of it. And he marries her and he doesn't remember any of it. And she gets really pissed with this (laughs) because he's supposed he's taking her or he takes her back to his home and he wakes up with her in his bed. And he just thinks that they had a fling. He doesn't remember marrying her. Oh no. And she gets really mad and like, Slaps the crap out of him and takes <laughs> off back to her gypsy camp. Um, and so, and they're reading this journal and it tells all about how he he goes back to the camp and he's trying to make things right and realizing that he does love her and all of that. But you're also seeing when they take a break from reading the journal, you're seeing the current family, um. I, I, turmoil, I guess, is the, maybe the best word. They, they always have some sort of scandal going on within the family. <laughs> um, every book has some, somebody's involved in a scandal somewhere. Um, and I believe in this book, it's mostly, there's a fight between two of the brothers. And then <laughs> there's also a fight between one of the husbands and the wives. I think it's Anthony oh rosalyn yes from scotland yes um and that their story is another one of my favorites in the series um do we get to see regina i love regina yes we get to see regina um and um who did she marry nicholas nicholas yes yes and abducted um, her
1: yeah as Um, often happens in a joanna Lindsay. yeah
2: it does um and so but the the over like it goes back and forth between modern day mallories and historical mallories and you get to see both um both ends of that and they learn in this book that that's uh that because several of the brothers have that blue eyes and black hair of the gypsies, and they've always thought that there's some gypsy blood, but there's never been proof. And so that's how they learn that they've always been right about that, that there is gypsy blood in, in their history. And that's where they got those cobalt blue eyes and the and the jet black hair. Um I believe it's blue eyes. I, it is blue eyes. I yeah. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, Cause I, I want to say if it's not blue, it's green. Um, but I just, I love the way Joanna, Joanna wrote this book, the way she seamlessly flows between the modern family days, um, you know, of getting ready for Christmas and their own scandals and flows back into them reading the journal, and just takes you back in history. You have no problems. It's not like throwing you from one time period to the next with like, whoa, how did it get there? How did that happen? Um, so I, I love all of that. And who doesn't love a good British historical romance that doesn't follow your typical British society right? norms. It's true. I, I love that. <clears throat> and you get a ton of that in Joanna Lindsay and that book again was called it's um the present and it's i believe the sixth sixth book in the uh, um, mallory anderson series by joanna Lindsay.
1: you know she's so, one of the goddesses of historical romance in my opinion like she wrote she so is. many i agree yeah <laughs> so one thing that i'm not a fan of is historical romance that take place primarily in the ballroom with fans and potted palms and assignations really? on the balcony. They're not my favorite. Like, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before in the never. almost year of Book Bistro's lifetime, but <laughs> never, in case ever. I haven't ever heard it. I know. So, I've been steering kind of clear of historicals lately because I just don't like the aristocracy ballroom type books. But I discovered this book and it's been out for a couple years now. And oh my gosh, you guys, like, I, I should have read this a long time ago. So this book is called Sweet Revenge by Zoe Archer. And I'm blanking on the name of the series. Shannon, can you, do you remember it? Nemesis like, I'm Unlimited. Nemesis Unlimited, book one. Um, yes. And this book t- takes place in Victorian London in 1886. And the very first scene of this book is very dramatic. It is a prisoner named Jack trying to escape from prison he has like a 42 year sentence so if he were to stay in prison and like you know stay there for his entire sentence he would have been 73 when he left um for attempted Ooh. murder so he's one of the kind you know like the anti-heroes that i love the most you know he's very he has rough edges he's been a prisoner before that he was a bodyguard and a boxer and he grew up um with a um, prostitute mother and no father And a sister who ended up going into the same life as her mother. And he went to prison because his sister was murdered by a lord after she was raped. And he tried to avenge her and was not successful and was sent to prison for 43 years. But he finds out that the lord in question is going to be at an inn very close to the prison walls. And he decides five years into his sentence that he is going to no matter what he's going to escape and he's going to avenge his sister finally what he doesn't realize after his escape from prison because he does in fact escape because he's quite brilliant is that this was all a setup and he was actually kidnapped by a shadowy group called nemesis unlimited is that right nemesis unlimited Yes. Is that right, Shannon? Yes. And so this group um, of two men and a woman kidnaps him at an inn and says, either you help us in the way that we deem appropriate to take this lord down, or we will send you back to prison. Ooh. So there are not a lot of options for our hero, Jack. And he's not happy. You know, he feels like he's exchanged one prison for another. But one of the members of this nemesis group is this very fascinating woman named Eva. And he would like to get to know Eva better. And she's beautiful and clever and very, very, very skilled with firearms. Very confident. And so he decides to go with this group back to London. And together, they work on bringing down this lord who has raped and um, discredited and in some cases murdered a number of women who are not part of the aristocracy, who don't have recourse, the ones who live, who don't have the ability to call him out and bring him down. And what Nemesis does is they work to bring down the people who are causing the, the less fortunate of the world troubles who cannot pay for the support And so together, Jack and Eva work to bring down this very cunning lord who always seems to slip through their net. And in the midst of all of their spying and intrigue, the two of them begin to fall in love. And it is a very sexy historical that takes place in the seedier side of London, and it does not, for the most part, take place in the ballroom. And... It's very well written. It's a slow burn romance, actually, because the intrigue and the the suspense and spying plot kind of take precedence over the very sexy romance. And the thing that I like the most, I really like the heroine. She's dark and complex. But I like that in this book, Jack, our hero, kind of begins to discover that he has self-worth. And he is more than just his muscle. He has a brain. And he has the ability to kind of um, be more than just someone's like bodyguard. He can actually do things with his mind. And I love this book so incredibly much. Again, um, this book is called um, Sweet Revenge, Nemesis Unlimited, Book One. And the author is Zoe Archer. And I think she, her alias is Eva Lee, her other pen name. And she's an amazing author. So I really encourage you to pick up one of her books, especially this one. I know Shannon has
0: read this and really enjoyed it. Yes. And I have several Eva Lee books here. I've read her, what is it? A trilogy about wallflowers. Yes. um, Wild Quills of London. That's what it's called. Okay. So my next pick is the first book in the Maiden Lane series. (gasps) Oh, by Elizabeth White. So this is Wicked Intentions. And As I said, when I talked about the Kelly Bowen series, the first book in a series is not always my favorite, and unfortunately, this one is not my favorite, but it is sort of an essential part of the Maiden Lane series, and so I really urge people to stick with it and read it and let yourself fall in love with the characters, because if you don't read it, I feel like you'll be at kind of a huge disadvantage if you want to continue reading the series. So... Our heroine is named Temperance, and she is a widow. She's living and working in a home for foundling children, and it has a really long name that I'm not remembering at the moment, but it's like eight words long. Um, <laughs> and, it's, and it's kind of like the, it was the life's work of her father who has now passed away. So Temperance is doing her best to kind of keep this home afloat. It's located in St. Giles, which is one of the most notorious London slums. It's also important for me to say that this takes place in like the late 1730s. So it's like a Georgian period as opposed to like Regency or Victorian. Um, so Temperance is not really enjoying her life. She doesn't have a lot of pleasure. She feels kind of bound to this work that she's doing, um, you know, with this, this foundling home. And yet, there's a part of her that isn't really sure that she deserves anything more than this. Now, our hero is named Lazarus, and he is a Viscount who has some very, for the time, like scandalous um, sexual preferences that we get to hear quite a bit about. Um, I think this is one of the most, I think this would have to be probably like the sexiest book in the series, I think. For all that, like the plot didn't wow me as much as others. Uh, I I did think there's a lot to be said for the uh, steam here. So Lazarus is looking for a murderer. And apparently this person has killed his mistress. And he wants to find out who is responsible. But this requires him to spend a lot of time in St. Giles, which is not a great place to be if you're a member of the aristocracy. So he appears at the foundling home and talks with temperance and offers her a bargain that she cannot refuse. If she will help him, locate the murderer so if she will take him around St. Giles and and help him figure out who's responsible he will introduce her to kind of some of the movers and shakers of high society hopefully this will result in the home being given a benefactor which it desperately needs so they do this and as their alliance deepens they also begin to fall in love, and they're forced to not only deal with the things going on kind of you know externally, so the the murder investigation and all of that, but also their own kind of inner demons that they have to battle so Maiden Lane is a fantastic series. It is twelve books long I believe yes it ended yeah. <clears throat> um, last year, I believe, and it was so very sad when the last I cried book was and cried. Written. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and so we follow Temperance and her family, but then we also get to know some of the members of the aristocracy, and we follow them as well. So it's a long and complex series. It is fantastic. I love the fact that there are all of these children who live in the foundling home, and all of the girls are named Mary, and they have like a second <laughs> name. It's like Mary Evening, and <laughs> yes. Mary Whitson. Yes, and Mary Darling, and there's all these people that have, like, names. And the boys are all named Joseph. Joseph. My favorite. <laughs> my favorite is Joseph Tinbox. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure, like, why he's called Joseph Tinbox. I think I knew at one point. I don't remember now. And I think there's one boy who refuses to be called Joseph because he already had a name. So his name is Henry. Mm-hmm. So there are all these Marys and all these Josephs. And then there's Henry. (laughs) So this makes me happy. I I love this series so much. So please start... And there's who? The Ghost of St. Giles. Oh, The Ghost of St. Giles. Giles. Yes. It's just the most... I don't even know. you read the synopsis, like if you generally look at synopses of books to see like who the next couple will be, don't do it. Don't do it. Because I found out the identity of the ghost of St. Giles way before I was supposed to. All because I wanted to see who was going to be getting a book. (laughs) And so it like spoils the the whole thing thing for me. It's terrible. You should never do it, apparently. So this is Wicked Intentions and it's Maiden Lane, book one by Elizabeth Hoyt.
3: So the next book I'm going to be talking about is Nine Rules to Break When Romancing a Break by Sarah McLean and it's the first book in her Love by Numbers trilogy and this book is kind of like a more traditional historical romance you know set in like Regency era um I know Stacey doesn't like ballrooms and (laughs) plotted plants and fans and lace caps but there's (laughs) a lot of these in this book but it's I think it's still an amazing story um, for all of its kind of like tropes, you can call them. So the story follows Calpurnia Callie Hartwell. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Calpurnia. Lady Calpurnia goes by Callie because she – doesn't like her name. So when the book begins, Callie is 17. She is at a ball. um, And this is like her first season. And it is not going well at all. Like, she's not a beauty. She's kind of more on the plump side. And her mother is kind of not very Fortunate in the fashion sense, Um, so she puts her daughter in really (laughs) unflattering dresses, Um, and so Callie has been kind of ignored at this ball. So she's fleeing the house into the garden, and she runs into Gabriel Saint John, or St. John, um, the Marquis of Ralston, and. He is known as the rakes to end all rakes. And at first, Callie's like, oh, no, I can't be seen with you. Um, but he's really nice to her. He kind of, like, listens to her woes and consoles her. And he actually calls her Empress um, because <laughs> Calpurnia was the wife of Julius Caesar. So um, it's kind of, like, became a pet name like, you know, Lady Calpurnia, like the Empress. So fast forward ten years, Callie is now a spinster. She's twenty-eight. She's hasn't had any suitors and she's, you know, on the shelf basically. Um, and she's wearing I guess like back in those days, if you're like a spinster, like lace caps are kind of like a thing. So so. (laughs) Kelly has taken up her lace cap and she wears it as kind of like a marker of her spinsterhood. And she seems to be content with it until her little sister, Mariana, gets engaged to the Duke of Rivington. And this is... The match of the season, because um, Mariana is pretty. She's vivacious. She's kind of like all the things that Kelly's not, but she doesn't resent her sister for it. Like they have a very loving relationship, um, which I really like because in like in other historical romances, you kind of get. Um, some rivalry between sisters going on sometimes and I really don't like that so
2: especially when they're so different
3: Uh right exactly Callie overhears a conversation between the two of them where Mariana is saying to her fiance that she's worried about her sister and she's like what about Callie like we have to take care of Callie because she doesn't have anybody So overhearing this, Callie makes a decision to herself to kind of take off that lace cap and to do the things that she's always wanted to do that is not befitting her station in life. And, you know, Callie has always been super proper. Like, she's always done everything correctly. And she's like... My whole life I've been following rules and it hasn't done well for me. So I'm going to do all the things that I want now um, that I couldn't do before. And so she writes up this list of nine things that she wants to do. All oh, the nine rules. Yep.
0: <laughs> and so, you know, it includes
3: like smoking a cheroot, uh, in a event's club, um, Riding uh, was like horseback astride, and all these <laughs> things. Uh, so, one of the things on her list is to get to be kissed, like a real kiss, at, because she's never had that in her twenty-eight years. And the person that immediately came to her mind was the Marquis of Ralston, it's like Gabriel St. Jin. And so, you know, she goes to his house and proposes this deal with him um, to kind of give her a kiss that she will always remember before kind of she settles into spinsterhood. Meanwhile, Gabriel is dealing with his own scandal. It turns out that he has a half-sister from his mother who fled London uh, years ago and married an Italian and so now his half English half Italian sister Juliana shows up and all of the tone is very scornful they think Italians are crass and wild and Juliana doesn't want to be there so when Callie shows up at Gabriel's townhouse, he was like, this is perfect. I need somebody who is impeccable, who has a sterling reputation to introduce Juliana to society. Um, so, So essentially to act as a sponsor for Juliana. And so he proposes this deal with Callie that he will give her this mind-blowing kiss that she's been wanting if she agrees to act as a guide for Juliana. That's kind of a lot to do for a kiss. Right? (laughs) (laughs) I'd want more than a
1: kiss for all that. I'm just saying. I know, right?
3: (laughs) Um, Yes. And so she agrees, but he doesn't know that she has this list of nine things that she wants to do. and. Kind of like throughout the course of the book, she uh, accomplishes them in very uh, interesting and kind of funny ways, and Gabriel kind of like always shows up (laughs) during these, and he is very angry with her. He's like, you're supposed to be helping my sister, and if you do all these things, you're going to ruin her reputation even more, but he... You know, they slowly kind of fall in love, and um, he kind of grows to realize that Callie has a is really passionate, really sweet, and that she doesn't want to settle for nothing less than love. Um, and Gabriel doesn't really have that in him so there's just this kind of dynamic going on of both of them wanting each other but kind of resisting it for various reasons and you know this book I love it so much because you know Callie is not really beautiful she she has a beautiful personality but the society doesn't you know appreciate that Um, and just in the book like people keep making comments about like her weight and how she's a spinster and it made me cry several times in the book because I'm like every girl can relate to this like to feeling inadequate and feeling like they're not worth enough. Um, and so I really empathized with that and connected with Callie. And I really like Sarah McLean's writing. I think it's really beautiful. And she, like in all of her books, I feel like she has a way of fleshing out characters really well. So like her characters are very different from each other. And this one is Nine Rules to Break When Romancing a rake. And it's the first Love by Numbers book.
1: So I bought the first Bare Knuckle Bastards book and I haven't read it yet, but after this description of your, you know, that, that book, this is an author I think I need to be a little bit more interested in, in reading. Um, I was afraid she was, yeah, I feel like I was afraid she was too like lighthearted aristocracy, tall ballrooms and, You know, I love books where the the heroine isn't the norm and has other things going on. And I think this would be, you know, right up my alley, this book. So I'm really glad you talked about it.
2: Okay, so um, Lauren Royal is an amazing writer. Her women are not your traditional, you know, housewife, pretty dresses, planning the parties, women. Uh, which I like. And the this book is called Emerald. It is the second book in her Jewel trilogy, um, which is the Chase family um, series, the first trilogy in that series. Um, this is Jason and Catherine's story. And... It takes place in England and Scotland in 1667. Um, Jason is out to bring a man to justice for harming two people in his village, a child and her mother. And in his travels to catch up with these two men, that he it's actually two men he's trying to bring into justice, um, he comes across who he thinks is a Scottish lad um but he finds out that it's not a lad it is actually a Scottish lass and so once he figures this out he thinks that she is this female bounty hunter called Emerald McCallum and thinks that she is after his quarry um and what he thinks, he thinks that she might be in danger, that even though she's this notorious bounty hunter, that she is really in danger trying to track these two guys down. So he takes it upon himself to kind of become her protector um, when he finds out they're going in the same direction, which is why he thinks she's after the same people he is. Um, However, she is not Emerald McCallum. She is Catherine Leslie from Scotland who is trying to chase down her brother who never likes to stay home. He likes to gallivant and she is trying to track down her brother because their father has just passed away. And so she has come to England to bring him back home um, because if she does not marry within a certain amount of time. The, the family estate falls to her brother. And while he's not really incompetent, he's not the kind of person that they want or she wants running the family estate on her, on her way to try to find her brother. And of course she runs into Jason. <laughs> he's a Marquis and um but she doesn't know this. And even though she doesn't really want to, um, she decides that, you know, he's going the same way I'm going. Um, I'm traveling by myself now. She, because she originally came to a co- uh, on a coach to England with a chaperone, but she's mercifully ditched the chaperone because she's this really old woman who is overbearing and drives her crazy and so she finally begrudgingly takes on his protection and travels with him but of course as time goes on and they're traveling and getting closer and closer to her brother and Jason's quarry they start to realize that even though they go through kind of this tit-for-tat kind of thing they they bicker back and forth. There are times they get along, but they, they banter a lot back and forth. They bicker back and forth and they start to realize that there's more to what they feel. They're starting to feel more for one another than just, um, companionship or protection or, you know, the means to an end. And, so of course, there's a lot of drama that happens that pulls them together and 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 makes them realize their love for one another. And uh, the Chase family is actually I, I love the Chase family. I I wish I could be a part of that family. Um, and I love books like that because they're very they're very quick witted. Um, they're very sarcastic and Um, but at the same time, they know their duties, um, because everybody in, in the family is a Marquis or a Duchess or a, um, you know, a, a something, everybody has a title and they all have their duties to their, their people. Um, but when it comes to the women in their lives, they are hardcore, uh, in their love, in their protection, in their understandings. Um, They don't believe their women should be tied down to the house. If their women want to take part in running the family estate, then they'll, you know, they allow them to do that. They allow them to, to be free young women, which is definitely not heard of in that time. Um, And that's one thing I love about Lauren is that she, allows this to be a thing in a time when it's really not a thing. And her books are centered around actual places. Kingwood Castle, um, and there's a few others in her other books, but every one of her books is actually based off of an actual place that you can visit if you go to the different uh countries in her, in her books, England and Scotland, and I believe one may take place partly in Ireland. I don't remember exactly, but I love this book. I love the whole Chase Family series. I've read it at least three times, all three trilogies, so I highly recommend Emerald. Um, it is book two in Lauren Royal's Chase Family series in the Jewel trilogy, the first book, if anyone is interested, is called Amethyst. So um, they can be read as standalones, um, but it's a lot better if you read them in order. Things do make a lot more sense if you read them in order.
1: I saved my favorite book for last, and I have to admit that despite knowing about this author for years and years, for whatever reason, because I haven't been reading historicals for a while. I have never read a Beverly Jenkins. I feel like lightning is going to strike me dead right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so I just read Rebel, Women Who Dare by Beverly Jenkins. And friends, this is going to be one of my top reads for 2019. And so the romance was great in this book, but what really compelled me was the history that Beverly Jenkins so effortlessly wove into this story. So this book takes place post-Civil War in New Orleans, and I love New Orleans. I was just there a couple years ago, and I cannot wait until the day when my husband and I go back. So anytime there's a book that takes place in this setting, I'm always like, yes, count me in. Let me read it. So anyway, this book takes place in New Orleans, and it is about a woman named Valinda Val Lacey. and she, is, um, she was born free. And she lives in New York City with her family. And she, <coughs> excuse me, I still have the captain trips. Um, she decides to go to New Orleans to assist with the teaching of freed slaves, both children and adults, after the Civil War and, and, and you know, when, when all, everything is changing in the South. And so she leaves. And she is engaged to a very lovely man but decides that while he's in Paris trying to get some um, support for his newspaper, she's going to like go to new Orleans and try to help with the teaching. And very early in the book, her school is trashed. She's accosted by ruffians and um, rescued by a man and his sister-in-law from the family Levesque. And that's when she meets Drake Levesque and his family. And they basically take her under their wing. And this is a free family of color um, who is quite wealthy, actually, um, through shipping efforts and other efforts throughout the city, hotels and other things. <laughs> and they kind of help Val to reestablish a school, both for adults and children. And they kind of help Val to see her way as an independent woman instead of somebody who's trying to follow the rules of her very dictatorial jackass of a father and so Val is kind of like learning how to be independent she's helping people in New Orleans she's falling in love with Drake Levesque she's falling in love with his entire family including his amazing mother and she's also learning how to be a a more self-confident woman and you know her father's going to come and try to get her to marry who he thinks her fiance is going to come back into the picture but you know the, the main thing that I loved most about this book, and what really stuck with me, is how Beverly Jenkins so effortlessly effortlessly wove into this book the history of the time, how freed African American men and women were treated just post Civil War, how there was so much poverty and so much you know change happening, and but yet how you know slaves still could not read or write, so were being forced to sign these contracts where basically they were working as slaves for seven days a week, for like, you know, many, many hours a day. Um, How supremacists were basically kind of taking over the Southern cities and massacring people of color. And, you know, through all of this, there was this beautiful sort of thread of hope, you know, they are, you know, and, and the people were saying we are free, we deserve to read and write. And people like the Levesque family were helping this to be a reality. And so, while I love the romance between Drake and and Val, the the thing that I loved most about this book was the history, and and how I learned more about the post Civil War era in the South than I ever have before in any you know class in high school or college. So, um, if you're looking for something that's really good, that that teaches you a lot, has a really sexy romance, um, you know, I would recommend. Um, Rebel, Women Who Dare, book one by Beverly Jenkins.
0: So, what if we talked about a romance where there wasn't a hero? How would that be?
1: If you're me. It's okay with me.
0: Yeah, see, if you're me, that's, like, super great. And it doesn't get to be super great for me, like, very often. Because there's a (laughs) lot of books that have two heroes, There are many, 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 many books that have one hero, and so very few that have none.
2: So I don't think I've ever read any with none.
0: (laughs) Oh, see? It is sad. So this is Proper English, and it is the latest historical romance by K.J. Charles, and actually the first one that I ever read. Um, Oh! Yes. Amber has read a couple of K.J. Charles books in the past, and one of my very best friends really really enjoys her writing, so I've heard so many good things about her, but I've never actually read her until I picked this book up. So this is proper English, and it takes place right kind of the late 1800s, kind of right around that turn of like the 20th century. It takes place in England, And all of it takes place at a country house party. Ooh. Now, sometimes country house parties can be super great, and sometimes they can just be really tedious. These, um, at least the one that I encountered here, is wonderful. So our two heroines are Pat and Fen, also known as Patricia and (laughs) Fenilla, and... Patricia is this, like, really outstanding markswoman. woman. And she goes to this house party because she hears that there's going to be a shooting contest there. And she really wants to be in it. And this is not, like, a great thing in society, but it's in the country, and people are kind of a little more lax, so they decide, you know, this is fine. And they've also heard what a great shot Pat is, and they kind of want to see it for themselves. Like, is she really as good as they claim? So, Pat is also really excited because she'll get to spend time with her friend, Jeannie, who she hasn't seen in a while. And she has to kind of come to terms with the fact that Janie is now engaged to be married. And Pat has no real interest in marrying Jeannie. Like, she's not. She's just not interested in that. But... Jamie was always kind of her, I don't know, kind of like last resort idea of someone she could marry if she wanted to. And now that's been taken away from her because he's getting married to someone else. So she um, arrives there and she's very excited to see Jamie. But she's also really intrigued by Fenella, who is the woman that he is going to marry. Oh, no. And they begin spending time together, kind of in the guise of, like, they're the only two women at this party, so they, you know, it makes sense that they would, like, hang out together. Society mm-hmm. sort of dictates that. But they become very attracted to each other. And then, someone is murdered. Oh Ooh, heavens! Like, there's a body <laughs> that's found in one of the bedrooms, and there's a knife, like, sticking out of it. <laughs> so this is very dangerous now because someone at this party killed another one of the guests. So together, Pat and Fen decide that they're going to figure out who this is before the constables are called because they're really concerned. Like, what if it's, what if Jamie killed whoever this is? Like, what if someone else that they both know and care about is responsible? So they want to find out who the villain is before the authorities arrive. And so this is just it's a lot of fun. It's a lighthearted mystery. So it does not take itself super seriously and you're not subjected to like hardcore suspense. Um it's just a very very nice. If you think of like Agatha Christie and the lesbians, <laughs> um <laughs> this is ah, that's this awesome. is proper English and mm-hmm. it's it's amazing. Um apparently Pat and Fen were first encountered in another novel called Think of England, and readers <laughs> were really enchanted by them, and so the author went back and wrote their story, and I'm so, so glad that she did. So this, again, is Proper English, and it is by K.J. Charles, and I love it. It's a short little book. I think it's about 250 pages. Um, it, it's fantastic. So... I'm intrigued by
1: K.J. Charles, her titles, because you know what it means when you think of England, right?
0: Yes, and that's why that title was created, actually, okay, all right. from all what right, I've heard right, in the interview. Okay. <laughs> that's so clever. Okay.
3: I saved the best book for last because I'm so excited to talk about this book because it is probably my favorite historical romances of all time, and it is The Duchess Deal by Tessa Dare. It's the first book in her Girl Meets Duke series, so I think she has four books planned. Um, The third one is coming out in August, and I, I cannot wait for it. Okay, so let me say that Tessa Dare writes really unconventional historical romances. Like, all of her heroines are very different for their time. Um, They're very forward thinking and there's a lot of like blue stocking, so very like intelligent women who are kind of viewed as weird, um, eccentric and basically spinsters. And so, That's something that you really like. You definitely have to read Tessa Dare. So, The Duchess Deal follows Emma Gladstone, who is a vicar's daughter, but she uh, ran away or left home, I should say. As one does. Yes. (laughs) In (laughs) disgrace at 16.
1: Ooh!
3: She was more kind of like turned out by her father for doing something that she was not supposed to. And so she went to London and started working as a seamstress. So when the book begins, Emma is at the very grandiose home of the Duke of Ashbury. And the Duke of Ashbury is this very imposing figure. He's a recluse, Nobody in society has seen him for a couple years um, since he returned from war. He was in the battle at Waterloo. So in that war, he was very badly burned and disfigured by a misplaced rocket. And so when he returned from the war, he was like battle scarred and He kind of kept himself away from society because he viewed himself as a monster with like the way that he looked. And so when Emma shows up at his house in a wedding dress that was supposed to be intended for his fiance um, who broke off the engagement with him he was in the middle of writing a letter to his solicitor saying I need a wife because he needs to make an heir for to carry on the dukedom and so it was a very funny scene with her showing up in his wedding dress as he was writing the line (laughs) and um they had this really witty banter back and forth and he offers her marriage he was like you check all of my boxes you (laughs) you are moderately pretty you're of (laughs) gentle breeding Uh, you are of uh, childbearing age and so let's get married and let's have a marriage of convenience and she was like you're crazy this is not what I do. I'm not just going to bury some random duke. And (laughs) so he kind of pursues her um, to the dressmaker shop and you know, in that time, one of Emma's friends um, kind of got herself into a situation that required Emma's assistance. So with this in mind, Emma accepts Ashbery's proposal and they get married. But if you like the tortured hero type, like, yes is the epitome of tortured heroes. And like, if you want <laughs> a tortured hero, you have to read this book. Okay. Uh, so he... <laughs> this is
1: for you. It's my favorite. It's my favorite type of romance. My... Oh. Um, anyway.
3: So he he really does think of himself as monstrous. Like, he just uses all these words, like, it's horrific and nobody's gonna love me and nobody even wants to see me. Like, they will flinch. and They run away. Yeah. And you find <laughs> out, kind of, like, later on in the book, kind of, like, something that happened that kind of... Like, established this line of thinking? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um. And it was really sad. But, so he was he was like to Emma, like, this is just a marriage of convenience. I just need you to bear me an heir and once that's done, you I'll get you a house in the country and we don't have to do, we don't have anything else to do with each other. But Emma doesn't want that. She you know, wants she has her own conditions for this marriage. Like she wants dinner with her husband with conversation and Um, you know, interaction and affection and so the book kind of follows their relationship and how it grows and um, you know, it kind of builds from their sexual relations, which Ash kind of wants to keep very clinical, it's like no kissing, no touching, nothing like that, Um, but of course, Emma's like, no, we're going to do it a different way. Um, and so she slowly penetrates his cold heart. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, kind of teaches him that she doesn't care about the way that he looks and she loves him just the way that he is. I think this is probably the only romance where I'm ever going to say this, that I love the hero more than the heroine, even though Emma is, absolutely amazing and I love her like she's very witty and she holds her own against Ash but he's just so complex in kind of his thinking and he's also just a really fun character like he doesn't swear necessarily like he doesn't use bad words but he'll he'll swear in Shakespearean (laughs) <laughs> and is the good. best
2: way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Right?
3: <laughs> it's so funny. Like, I laughed my way through the entire book. Like, my stomach was hurting. Um, and, like, it's Emma's so- friends that you meet in the books are also great. And you know, they're, they get their stories later on. And this is just like classic Tessa Darely. She creates really so- fantastic awesome. characters really relatable um, and she does it with so much humor like whenever I whenever I want to laugh I pick up one of her books Um, if you if you're familiar with Molly Harper yes urban fantasy and southern romances Tessa Dare kind of reminds me of her but for historicals oh
2: I definitely have to look her up
3: yeah so this was um, the Duchess Deal Girl Meets Duke Number One by Tessa Dare. I need this in my life. Yes.
2: And this so, is probably gonna open all kinds of rabbit holes in Goodreads. So I
1: have to,
0: <laughs> to dissent because I read this. And I I liked it. But I didn't love it as much as oh, I was hoping to. Shannon! I know! Oh. I found I like figure hero books. Oh, it was wonderful for like the. It was wonderful in some ways, but I found certain parts of it just like very. Part of it is I'm not. I don't always like the lighter. The lighter stories, and so that may play into that some. Um, but I found like the whole thing about like the monster of Mayfair to be like really <laughs> silly and like really ridiculous and not necessarily in the way that, but, that, but seriously wasn't the tone kind of silly and
3: ridiculous though like I mean not was, like kind of this I don't know it, I, just, I definitely have to say it was very ridiculous but you know I think that's kind of like the tone that she's going for because with her like later like the governess game like the second book I felt like that there were parts of it that were really ridiculous too, but I think that's that's why I love her books so much because they like they kinda like defy the historical romance um,
1: convention.
0: Yes. And I think it's very much like a preference thing because I don't like Molly Harper. Um, I'm oh! Like one of the few, you knew that. Go away! <laughs> I'm like one of the few people on the podcast who is not a Molly Harper fan, and yeah. I don't, I don't. I like, her, like but funny she's books. Not one of
2: my favorites. You don't think they're not,
0: funny? I, I just, I just don't like funny books. Like uh. Shannon likes death. Okay, like I do, I do like death and murder. They were talking about comfort, comfort reads, and I'm like, ooh. Let's talk about, like, murderers in a snowstorm. (laughs) It's the best. You can't do that. Oh, you're you're starting starting to scare me. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. It's not snowing right now. No. So like, murder is is far away. I love love to scare myself. Like, that's sort of my, like, comfort. I want to, like, hide (laughs) in my bed with my cat, like, pull my blankets up, and just, like, terrify myself (laughs) with these really creepy books. Like, the best thing ever.
2: Uh, My third book for today is Across a Wild Sea by Sasha Lord. It is book three in in her wild series. And this is Xanthier and Ilana's uh, story. You come in on the book where Ilana is an infant, really, and her mother is running from people who want to hurt her. Um, She is the mistress. She is a mistress and she was not supposed to get pregnant and it happened and she decided to keep the child, but um, the person she was a mistress to um, did not want this to happen. He wants the child dead. So she puts her baby in a bassinet, in a boat, and pushes her out to sea, in hoping that somebody will find her and take her in. And eventually, uh, she is found, and she is taken to an island, and she is raised by uh, a lady that she only knows as grandmother, and um, Ilana is actually blind. And so she learns to navigate this island and live on this island with just using her other senses and um, learning from grandmother. And um, she's very in tune and with the horses of this island. Um, and it's just her and grandmother and these horses. And that's all she's known for 18 years. Um, And then one day there's a really bad storm and a boat is, or a ship is washed up on the shore of this Island. And this boat belongs to Xanthier O'Bannon from Scotland. And he's an outcast from Scotland. So he's a marauder of the seas. He's feared by a lot of people. He's kind of just a pirate Um, though. He, once he, you know, is out on the sea for a while and finds enough treasure, he takes it back to the King of Scotland. So he is washed up on this shore and Alana finds him and she nurses him back to health along with uh, help from grandmother. And he is pretty much stuck on this Island with her and grandmother until his men find him. And um, I kind of thought for the longest time reading this book that he was kind of an idiot <laughs> because um, for the longest time, he can't figure out why Ilana will not look directly at him. And, you know, why because she doesn't, she can't. Can't. yeah, because she can't, like he, he just doesn't seem to grasp this because she moves around so freely and everything, but he doesn't get why she will not look him in the eye or anything and and he has this really ugly scar on his face and he's wondering if the reason that she won't look at him is because she doesn't like the look of the scar she doesn't know it's there (laughs) and it's like you know after a while it's kind of like really guy you've been on this island for months now and you, you still haven't figured it out um during this time, he's on the island and him and Alana get to know each other better. Um, grandmother gets really sick. And before she passes away, she asks Xanthir to please look after and protect Alana. That all she's ever known is this island and she doesn't, excuse me, she doesn't know it. But, but she's going to need someone to to look after her. She's not always going to be able to survive on this island all to herself. Um, and so Xanthier of course, promises that he will. And so then it's just him and Alana because grandmother does pass away. And he starts to, he finally, you know, realizes that she's blind and he starts to, um, to learn from her how to use his other senses to navigate the island. And of course, they build this romance. And eventually his men do find him and he realizes that he has to go back to Scotland to put a claim on this island for Ilana because women are not alo- allowed to own property um, but he doesn't explain any, any of this to her and she is a very independent self-sufficient woman because that's the way she was raised she knows nothing about the rest of the world um, And instead of explaining all of this to her, he just tells her that she must come back to Scotland with him. He's there to protect her and and all of this. And of course she fights it. Um, There is a uh, amulet that she has that kind of reveals who she really is. And she is a... She's the member of a, of a high-ranking family in Scotland, but she doesn't know this. And he, he, see, he finds this amulet, and he realizes this. And so he pretty much kidnaps her and takes her back to Scotland with him. And his plan is to go there. Petition the the king to let him put a claim on this island so that no one can take it from Alana. And then he wants to return to this island with her and live there happily ever after because he's realizing that he loves her. But of course, nothing goes to plan. Um, Alana is left on his ship and told to wait for him. And of course, he's gone longer than the three days he originally planned. And so she gets sick of waiting. So she takes her horse that they have brought with her and flees the boat and is riding crazily through the streets of Scotland. Um, And eventually is thrown from her own horse and comes across this little girl who fell off her pony. And um, they become fast friends and Alana offers to take her back to her home because her pony has run away. And unknowingly, this is Xanthier's daughter, who he has no contact with. He left in the care of his brother, Brogan O'Bannon. And so Ilana is kind of taken into the O'Bannon family, um, and they don't know her connection to Xanthier, and she doesn't know their connection to Xanthier until much later. He tried to claim the island. Um, The king offered it up as a prize to annual games. And Alana finds this out and gets really mad. Um, but then there's also someone out to murder her because she, uh, she could possibly take his position in the family because she was the firstborn and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of um, miscommunications that happened. But it all comes to a beautiful end, of course. Um, But this is once again Across a Wild Sea by Sasha Lord, and it is book three in her wild series. Um, And you actually meet Brogan in book two. So that family comes together as well in book two and three. All
0: right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of historical romances. Of course, there are many, 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 many more that we could not talk about, and that is sad. But that means that we just have to revisit this beautiful topic.
2: Yes, please.
0: So I want to thank Stacy, Min, and Kristen for chatting with me this evening, thanks, as always, goes out to Christine, not to be confused with Kristen, who does all of our fantastic editing so that you hear the parts of these episodes that sound good, as opposed to the ones where we, like, ramble incessantly and laugh and do whatever other things we do. Um, But, of course, we would not keep doing the podcast if people didn't listen. So thank you to all of you who join us each week. We appreciate it ever so much.